It's my very great pleasure to introduce today's moderator, Mr. Foon Ri. Foon Ri is an associate editor and columnist at the Sacramento Bee, where he writes about local, California, and national issues. He joined the Sacramento Bee's editorial board in 2010 after reporting and editing for newspapers in Massachusetts and North Carolina. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Mr. Foon Ri. So thanks to everyone for coming out again. Um, uh, obviously, immigration is a huge issue for California and for America. Um, but so far, the focus has been on who to let in and who to keep out. Um, there hasn't been nearly enough conversation about what we do once immigrants are here, how to help them succeed. So hopefully, we'll talk uh, more about that today. So let me introduce the, uh, the panelists. From my right, we have Daniel Torres, who's California's State Director of Immigrant Integration. We have Maria Blanco, who's Executive Director of the Immigrant Legal Services Center at the University of California. And we have Steve Lee, who is the mayor of the city of Elk Grove. So, um, so Daniel, let's start with you. So um, I'm not sure that many people know that your job exists. So can you um, tell us exactly what you do day to day to help immigrants in California? Thank you, yes. Pleasure to be with you all today. Um, well, my job is relatively new. It was created in 2015, and it's, uh, I'm the Director of Immigrant Integration. I'm a senior advisor to the governor, and I advise um, the governor on legislation, new policy ideas uh, that impact immigrants in California. I advise our cabinet members on policies of general application that uh, may have impacts on immigrants in California. It's, it's a pretty unique role in state governments. Um, I, I believe it's the first of its kind uh, at a, as a cabinet level advisor in any state. Other states have, um, a few other states have offices of new Americans, such as New York, um, Michigan, Illinois, and they're situated in agencies and they do similar things within those agencies. So when you took uh, your job, obviously um, none of us knew that uh, the president we have now would be president. How has your job changed since um, President Trump has been in office? Well, it certainly has added new challenges. I'll acknowledge that. Um, I think, you know, as you said earlier, the, the, the main purpose of the role is to help us think through how we help immigrants survive and thrive in California. Uh, we have over 10 million foreign-born um, uh, Californians, uh, people who speak over 200 languages, mm -hmm. and the main uh, purpose of this role is to help us come up with policies to help uh, immigrants become part of the socio and economic fabric of California and make sure that they succeed, that their family members succeed. And so that, that can make, it's still a primary purpose of this role, but I think uh, every day um, the role has new challenges with the changes in federal policy and, and how, we, how we layer that on top of our day-to-day -day work. So one of those big challenges, obviously, is the DACA program. There was, uh, yesterday was the date that the president had set to end it, but the courts have blocked it. Um, can you t uh, tell us about the various categories of DACA recipients? Because I'm not sure everyone knows the different um, circumstances that can affect people here. Right. So just to... To give you a little bit more background, uh, as many of you know, last September, uh, the president rescinded the DACA program, and then since then there have been um, many lawsuits, and, and now we have three injunctions um, that have ordered the uh, different, different pieces of DACA to, to continue in play. And, and so for people who have uh, previously applied for DACA uh, under the court orders, they can continue to renew their status. But um, 
one thing that, that has been left as a gap is uh, for folks who never did apply before for DACA, they've been left out. And for the many new, newly eligible um, uh, candidates for DACA, the, new, the folks that are turning, uh, coming of age to qualify, they've been left out. So, so there are many folks out there that I think um, um, are really struggling to, to figure out a path forward. And so that the DACA litigation has certainly not solved the, the real question, and that is how do we find a path forward to citizenship for the DACA population. So, so Maria, um, you are directly involved with DACA recipients as well. Um, so I, you know, I, I interviewed you right before the inauguration two years ago, and there were, I think, 4,000-some dreamers at UC campuses. Um, so what's changed uh, since then, and what has your work been like lately? Well, it's changed a lot. The um, there's, when the center that I, that I direct started, mm -hmm. it was a sort of a, um, a moment of optimism in the sense that we were, our lawyers were uh, helping people file DACA, mm -hmm. either renewing or new cases and helping them uh, get permission to be able to do education abroad, which college, uh, undocumented college students hadn't been able to do before because they couldn't leave the country mm -hmm. and come back, but with DACA they could. So we, you know, it felt like um, we were uh, really helping with the higher education mission of the university by the, the DACA students could work so they could uh, afford college in ways that they couldn't afford before. Mm -hmm. So it was really kind of a moment of optimism when we started. After the election, even um, before the rescission of DACA, because of the pronouncements that were made, uh, there, it, it, the mood really changed uh, among the, the students. And it, it wasn't just because of uh, fear that something might happen. We did, even before the rescission of DACA, there were a series of executive orders mm -hmm. that were issued by the new administration that, um, there were several of them, but the, I think in a way the one that was most, had the most impact on our uh, students was the idea that there would no longer be prior priorities for deportation mm -hmm. under the previous administration. Uh, convicted criminals, violent convicted criminals ha were a priority for apprehension right. and deportation. And if you were um, a student and you were young and you had been here and you'd never been arrested, you were way down on the priority list and, and parents who had never been in trouble uh, were way down mm -hmm. uh, the priority list. Well, the, one of the first orders said everybody's a priority. So that already created um, a, a different mood and a different uh, sense among our, right. our students. So now um, uh, we have, um, we can't do d initial DACAs for people anymore because right. the program's ended. And so people think, oh, there's the court cases. Yes, but that's only for people that already had DACA. We can't do new DACA cases. What that means for students is that without DACA, they can't work. Right. And not just on campus, they just can't work. Our big fear is that without the ability to work, that we will see less, fewer people applying to college and, and that we might lose people that are currently enrolled because so, uh, of the price. So have um, your offices and your lawyers um, been busier in recent months with so much um, uncertainty and so much publicity about? Yes, we've gone from five lawyers to nine uh, in order to meet the need. We now have lawyers at each UC campus. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and each of those lawyers handles uh, about 40 to 50 cases. And last year we, saw, we opened about 800 plus cases. I think this year we'll probably have around 1,400. I wouldn't be surprised. But the work has gotten very complicated mm -hmm. and, and we have a lot more cases. Um, there have been some um, federal immigration raids in the news lately. Have any students been um, caught up in those? Well, we, not in the raids, but we have had, which we thought might happen, um, there, a UC Berkeley student was apprehended by ICE, not on campus, um, and a UCSD student was apprehended by ICE. So we've now had two students. Um, they're both out. One of them will still have to go to immigration court. The other one had DACA and probably will be okay. So that, that news, as you can imagine, spread like wildfire uh, <laughs> through right. all the campuses, and, and it really affected the student body a lot. Um, Merrilee, when you were elected, you were the first Hmong American elected mayor of a city in the United States. Um, Elk Grove is one of the most diverse cities in the United States. Um, so how has your own immigrant story affected how you um, govern as mayor? Well, the interesting part of it is um, uh, the journey really started uh, when I jumped into public service. And um, you know, as, as diverse as Elk Grove is, um, there's also very few, and I always say very few because that's really what America's about. There are few uh, that wants to present it in such a way that it appears like the majority of us are, are opposed to people who look different and people who come from other countries. Uh, having um, an opportunity to run for public office uh, early on, um, I received that kind of, um, uh, let's say, lack of a better term, hate speech. You know, uh, people who would send me notes say, telling me, refugee, go back home. Or um, even when I was elected a mayor, um, there was a, a post on social media um, from somebody who says that they live in Elk Grove um, uh, telling me that I'm going to fail because of the fact that I'm uh, uh, somebody who came from a different country. Um, that really just reinforces the reasons why I'm in public service. Um, when um, I look back to the history of um, specifically of the, uh, the Hmong, um, you know, coming into the United States, um, there was heavy debate about whether bringing hillbillies uh, from the mountains of Laos, uh, whether they would even have a chance here in the United States. And I think that by virtue of uh, the existence of uh, uh, the, the Hmong community and their success, mm -hmm. I think it's, shoot, if the Hmong community can do it, hillbillies who actually came here and have an opportunity in higher education and are able to make something of, of themselves, I think that anyone here in the world can do it. Um, so that is a constant reminder that I, I, I keep in the back of my head um, uh, to, um, to make sure that I stay on point and to make sure that um, I'm reminded constantly of the reasons why I do this work. It's really to give voice to those who are voiceless, is to tell the rest of the world that uh, if um, Steve Lee, a former refugee, mm -hmm. who's American first, I happen to be of Hmong descent, um, but that's kind of how I see the world. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I, I see that there, there's hope. Um, so, so what programs does the city of Elk Grove have to help immigrants um, integrate and succeed? Well, one of the strongest things that the city of Elk Grove uh, does is we have partnership with, uh, with nonprofit agencies. We, um, we have uh, transition housings uh, that are in place. Um, we have uh, resources in which we leverage um, the, one of the, um, the, the tricky parts for, for us is um, we have to make sure that 
obviously local government, the priority is public safety and um, you know, making sure that there's infrastructure within, within the city. Uh, but that does not limit uh, the fact that we are in close par partnership with uh, nonprofit agencies in, in working uh, towards a common good. Um, so Daniel, can you talk a little bit about um, the statewide programs that are available to help immigrants succeed? I know that uh, with some of the executive orders that have happened, um, um, undocumented immigrants aren't eligible for Medi-Cal as much as they were or could have been. Um, but what programs are there on the state level to help immigrants? Well, over the last uh, 17 years, California has been um, very uh, uh, prolific at looking at how to integrate uh, immigrants. And I want to say the last seven years have been very busy mm -hmm. looking at that question. And so, <clears throat> you know, we've, we've passed laws that help immigrants um, access higher education, uh, undocumented right. immigrants um, who, who basically grew up in California um, can access um, college and, and pay in-state tuition mm -hmm. and can also access private loans, um, public loans as well. We have a, a, a very active um, program now around adult education to help English learners mm -hmm. um, in the adult uh, space and prepare for citizenship. Uh, last few years, we, we've made heavy investments in legal services for immigrants to look at uh, where you know people are in their different statuses. We, we have a very diverse set of statuses in California. We have about, like I said, 10 million people who have got, we're foreign born, about half of them have, have become US citizens, the naturalization mm -hmm. process. 2.5 have some form of lawful permanent residency or some other visa status. And about 2.2 have undocumented status. So our challenge has been, how do we help all uh, our, our foreign born residents um, get to the next place with, you know, and, and their integration. So for some, you know, we've, we've, we've tailored programs in the workforce arena. For others, it's been about making sure that they have access to legal counsel to look for a path forward. I mean, perhaps mm -hmm. they might have legal status that they, out there, uh, options that they may not have been aware of. Or if they've been green card holders, help them become U.S. citizens and you know, give them access to citizenship prep courses and legal counsel who can help them apply for those well, statuses. What do you see as the major problems or, or challenges facing um, the immigrant communities in California? Is, or are they the same issues that affect um, all Californians? You know, poverty, um, unemployment, all you know, those kinds of things. I think you know we have we have universal challenges for sure. Mm -hmm. We have housing challenges. We have um, uh, you know access to to education challenges. I think immigrants. Um, we have such a diverse range of immigrants, mm -hmm. including refugees right. who, who have status when they come in, um, who have trauma of their own that they're, they're recovering from. We've got um, communities that were raised here who are undocumented, um, trying to find a path forward and get to college. So there's not a universal problem in, 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 in any particular community. It's sort of just generally there are right. challenges across the board that, that we have to think about. Um, Maria, what are there any particular challenges that you're seeing among um, the UC students that you and your lawyers are, are working with? Well, one big uh, challenge is going to be uh, if DACA ends mm -hmm. and there's Congress does not resolve this issue mm -hmm. uh, and the court injunctions go away, we'll have a group of students that we've invested in all the way through K through 12, mm -hmm. then uh, four years of college if they went on to college, so, or two years if they've gone to community college. And then without uh, work authorization, they won't be able to work. So there's all these years of education, uh, and some of them uh, are graduate 
uh, we now have people at the professional uh, graduate level as well um, that have been able to, because of DACA, they can go to graduate school. So it's, it's, there's a, a big concern about what do you do with this entire set of people that we've now helped open up uh, both uh, uh, K through 12 and college and postgraduate and now they won't be able to work. And so that's a huge issue that everybody's looking at. How are we, and, and, it's, um, and it's very hard for California to do that on its own. It really is a federal problem, although there are people trying to f see if there are state solutions to that. Mm -hmm. But I would say that's one of the uh, bigger issues and people will, I'm very concerned people won't even feel motivated to apply to college if they think that at the end of the of of their four years or two years that there's nothing there for them to are do you, with this education. Are you noticing that already in some of the application numbers? The the Cal Grant the Dream Act Cal Grants numbers, mm -hmm. uh, which are the scholarships, um, right. uh, they're uh, merit based. Uh, have the applications have gone down uh, this year? There's a big concern that people aren't using them, and we that's that's there, the numbers are there, the statistics are there. Sort of word of mouth, we do hear students saying that maybe they will drop out while they still have DACA, work as much as they can to save some money, and then come back to school. And we're very concerned that they won't make it back. It's, you know, once mm -hmm. they, they leave. Um, so those are big issues right now. Um, so, Marilee, um, mm -hmm. do you, f I mean, you talked a little bit about this, but do you feel um, a special responsibility to immigrants in Elk Grove given your own story? And how do you balance that with, um, you know, uh, meeting the needs of all of the citizens of Elk Grove. Well, I think, you know, um, what makes America great is the fact that we, I, and I truly believe in this, we are a nation of immigrants. And that being the case, it's not just, you know, being a voice for immigrants and refugees, but also being a voice for all American citizens. And I think that's, that's the core to what America is all about. And that, that it makes it uh, simple, you know. Um, and reiterating that and repeating that over and over again and recognizing um, the, the fact that uh, students in which we have invested in need to be able to matriculate into higher education so that they can be productive. I think that we are sh really shooting ourselves in the foot if we are looking at the, um, the opportunities to kind of limit that. And we, when I say we, I, I mean you know, certainly uh, the president and the federal government uh, along those lines. Um, it doesn't make logical sense. If we truly believe in the fact that we are a nation of immigrants, if we truly believe that education is the key to uh, an equal playing field, uh, an opportunity to empower people who come here, um, we should be supporting that with policies. And um, uh, you know, for, for, for me as a mayor, it really is uh, you know, very logical that I remain consistent with that. And, and it's easy to, to make the case. Uh, it really is. Um, when you, when you talk to your uh, peers and counterparts around the country, do they understand the importance of immigrants um, to California, or do you have to, do you find yourself explaining that? I think most people assume that, um, you know, I was born here in the United States. Uh, and um, uh, for, for many of us who, who came here recently, I think it's important for us to highlight that. Mm -hmm. um, not only that, but I always remind people when I talk to them that every one of us have a story. And uh, if you came here 150 years ago, it doesn't mean you have more rights than the person who came here 10 years ago. Uh, if you're here in the United States, you should have an opportunity. 
And that, you know, again, is what America, uh, makes America great. And for, for me, my communication with my colleagues uh, across the, the, the nation, at the mayor's conference or at you know different opportunities, um, in which uh, you know I'm, I'm out of this region, um, it resonates with them mm -hmm. when I remind them that they too are from somewhere else. Um, so Daniel, um, what other programs do you think the, the state should be looking at? I mean, I know you're dealing with sort of like the daily challenges that are uh, that seem to be coming every day these days, but. Um, what um, other programs or what other initiatives might be out there that would help immigrants in California? I mean, touching on the topics that, that my colleagues have, have mentioned, it, another sort of layer to the, the experience of, of immigrants today is, is, is uh, civic engagement and really mm -hmm. knowing more about our system uh, and, and uh, their rights in particular. So we've invested heavily in legal services, but I think mm -hmm. in order to make anything any of those rights meaningful, people really have to understand what their individual rights are and how to assert them, mm -hmm. how to engage um, our legal system in a way that that's helpful. So, you know, it's one thing to have you know, ready to go lawyers, but we need people to actually talk to them and establish connections with legal counsel so that they know what their options are should they have to experience a raid or an arrest or have to go through immigration court. And um, so on, on the civic engagement um, piece, um, how closely do you work with the Secretary of State and some of his initiatives on voting and trying to get uh, people to register and, and to vote? And there's you know, many more languages now um, on election materials. We work pretty closely with, with his office. Um, um, uh, is there anything new happening for the June primary that you're aware of? Um, I, I, you know, we, we're preparing for our census rollout, mm -hmm. uh, our census campaign. We're preparing uh, our motor voter rollout system, which is going to be very helpful for newly naturalized um, citizens to, to learn how, you know, the process and get uh, registered to vote and then actually vote this year. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that process is going to be um, rolling out in the spring. Um, so on, on, the, on the 2020 census, there's been some controversy lately on the citizenship question that may or may not be asked. Um, what's your view on that and whether that might discourage people from actually participating in the census and being counted? And that has, of course, the effect on California of, um, on representation and on um, federal money. Right. I think, I think it is going to be, it's a cause for concern. I think uh, it could, it sends a message that not everybody counts and that's not what our constitution requires. Uh, our constitution requires a census of uh, the count of all of the people of the, uh, that live in the United States. And so um, that's our message, that everyone counts, and uh, we want to make sure uh, all of our, our citizens, non-citizens, everyone um, gets fully enumerated in, in Census 2020. So we, we plan to invest in a campaign to make sure that, that people understand the process, mm -hmm. understand the confidentiality rules of mm -hmm. the census data, and uh, participate because it does matter. It matters to our state's you know, representation in Congress, our funding. Uh, we make so many decisions based on census data, even at, mm -hmm. at a localized level. Mm -hmm. I don't think people realize how much we, we go to that, that information on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's critical that everyone gets counted. So you're already working on public outreach and awareness programs, and do you have the budget to do that? In January, the governor proposed $40.3 million for a census outreach campaign, and so we're going through that process now through the legislature to, to finalize that, hopefully in June. Um, Maria, uh, what, no, it's sort of the same question. What other initiatives and programs do you uh, either hope happen or are 
going to happen at the UCs to help on immigrant, uh, immigrant students? Well, I want to just take a step back and not just UC. I'm, I think the issue of civic participation mm -hmm. is a huge issue um, in terms of um, once you know, barriers are removed, mm -hmm. there's still the issue of uh, encouraging uh, civic participation. And most people think of voting, but there's really, uh, it's really much more. It's, uh, you know, PTAs and knowing how a city council works or, you know, lo you know local elections, not just federal presidential elections. And um, I think that's probably, in a sense, the next frontier is making sure that, particularly n the newest immigrants, mm -hmm. um, that are here and, and, and particularly those that naturalize, but even the ones that aren't citizens, really um, uh, explaining and working on the integration into civic society. Mm -hmm. it, many of the things that have happened positive around immigrants in California in the last 20 years have had to do a lot with a certain segment of the population realizing that they had to participate mm -hmm. in policy making, not just voting, but showing up, you know, at, at every level of government. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the, the, the true indicator, in a sense, of integration is when people participate at all levels. So uh, I think that's something cities can do to encourage mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, institutions, you know, can encourage that. The college students get that almost by default, mm -hmm. by being in college, they begin to learn right. the exchange of ideas and, mm -hmm. and et cetera. But outside of college, uh, I think we still have a challenge of communities that are sort of insular, mm -hmm. and we need to, to sort of break down that insularity. Um, so, so Mary Lee, you've been a trailblazer in politics to, to some extent. Um, how important do you think uh, it is for um, elected officials to be more representative of the immigrant community, um, you know, at every level, local, state, Congress? Well, it's, you know, along the lines of what I said earlier, it's important um, to, to be poster, uh, you know, children of uh, immigrants and refugees. Um, and, you know, and it doesn't have to be a, a recent arrival as well. Um, but I think what's important that Americans need to understand is that you need to come to terms with the fact that you're from somewhere else. And the fact that you engage with your, um, with your journey, which brought you here in the United States, that highlights you uh, as an immigrant as well. Um, and, um, you know, certainly you know, it, it's always a good balance to have good diversity. Um, the first state of the city uh, address that I um, had an opportunity to do in Elk Grove, um, I looked at every council member and I wanted to incorporate their own journey. Mm -hmm. And so we have a Vietnamese, a Chinese um, uh, American, um, we have um, uh, Irish and a Greek. And so <laughs> I think it was important for me to not just highlight about my journey, mm -hmm. but to talk about every council member. You know, the fact that one of our council members, you know, uh, came from the east and, and came to Chico and homesteaded up there. His ancestors then moved from uh, Chico down to Elk Grove. The uh, fact that when the other council members uh, came from uh, Greece uh, and it came, uh, his, his grandfather came through Ellis Island. You know, uh, these are all real stories. And of course, you know, obviously the most recent is my journey and, and um, 
the other two council members that are um, you know fresh uh, as immigrants and refugees. So, yeah. Do you um do you have a leadership role in the the Hmong community um, nationwide, and what are you hearing from them about how they're feeling about? Well, I'm I'm, I'm very fortunate, as as you, as you pointed out, um, I happen to be um, you know of, of Hmong descent and happen to be the first and only uh, mm -hmm. mayor here in the United States, and so that gives me um, uh, recognition and attention from different communities. What I'm hearing from the Hmong community is that they are certainly concerned, um, being that. Um, the the Hmong uh, story is, um, you know, um, the, the Hmong who came here didn't come here by choice. Uh, they came here because, uh, you know, the, the Hmong army stood up against communism, and, and that resulted in the journey here. Uh, but their concern is for uh, their fellow, um, you know, colleagues, comrades um, here in the United States, um, you know, worried about the fact that um, the policy from uh, this president and the federal government uh, does not really support immigrants or refugees. Um, Daniel, I know that part of your background is with rural legal assistance. Um, how, how has that work um, helped inform how, what you do um, in your job now? My experience working in rural communities has given me, I think, a perspective on how much more uh, work we need to do in rural spaces mm -hmm. to, to, um, to address some inequities. I think you know, as we make investments <coughs> statewide around legal infrastructure, legal services, we have, we have gaps in rural, rural communities mm -hmm. where that, the, the pre-existing nonprofit infrastructure doesn't quite exist in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, you know, building those institutions is going to be critical in, in the future so we can make sure that people have access to the services that we're providing um, uh, urban centers. Right. And, I, and um, you know, to, to uh, Maria's point as well, I think you know, we, there's a lot more to do and many opportunities in rural communities to uh, support civic engagement. Mm -hmm. One of the best experiences I had in my career was helping uh, parents learn about the, uh, the, the school board systems in very small mm -hmm. communities in the Central Valley, right. where you know, many of them said, you know, I, I care about my kids' education, but I don't know that they want me there. You know, they, they barely even want us here in this community. Why would I go to a school board hearing to talk about you know, what I want to see for my kids' future? Mm -hmm. And that, that sentiment, I think we have to take on and say, you are part of the community. You have a seat at the table. You have a seat at the, at the, at the podium. Go, go speak up and, and talk about why this is important for, you, for your child. Um, so many opportunities there for us to take on. Um, you mentioned that um, part of your uh, role is that you're um, a senior advisor to the, to the governor. How often do you get to talk to him about these issues and can you shed any light on what he's thinking about these days in his uh, last little time as governor? Here? <laughs> uh, well, I, I think it's, it's sort of, um, there's not a set schedule. I mean, it kind right. of things come up and we have, you know, as a senior uh, team, we, we advise him on the issues of the day. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, his budget uh, speaks uh, to his priorities. The state mm -hmm. of the state has been, you know, uh, a very clear message of what he wants to do in this last uh, year. So, um, I mean, those, those two platforms really speak for themselves. Um, and Maria, what, uh, um, President Napolitano created your, your role and she was sort of ahead of her time. Um, <laughs> Uh, what is she telling you now about w how your office may uh, expand or change in, in the coming years? Well, we've already um, expanded um, mm -hmm. under, uh, under her. 
we started out um, quite small and she augmented our budget. So she saw, you know, the, the success and the need. Mm -hmm. uh, but beyond funding our program, uh, she has also taken a really interesting leadership role um, on behalf of her students, but really at a national level. Right. Uh, University of California filed the litigate, one of the lawsuits challenging the end of DACA. Mm -hmm. And that, that was a very powerful message because the, the lawsuit is on behalf of the regents of the um, state of California, you mm -hmm. know, the University of California. And as you know, uh, 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 Janet Napolitano was the head of Homeland Security right. under the Obama administration. So for her, as a former head of DHS, mm -hmm. uh, and overseeing, you know, ICE and high, you know, um, Customs and Border Patrol, to then be on the opposite side of a, of a lawsuit suing right. the federal government um, really is, is quite dramatic. If, if you stop and think about it, you know, right. uh, you know, with a little bit of distance, that in a, in a period of uh, five years, somebody would go from cabinet secretary of, of DHS to suing DHS, you know, for the elimination of a program that she sees herself as having been the creator of. Right. So that she did really on behalf, yes, of the whole country, but she really, when you read the, the complaint, she really highlights the importance of DACA for the students at the University of California and of those students once they graduate for contributing economically mm -hmm. to the well-being of California to help with the wealth creation in California. So she's grown from just funding our program to actually taking on a role sort of championing this issue right. nationally, which has been interesting to watch. Um, because she's taken such a prominent and, and public role, do you have any concern at all that that puts a target on the UC campuses? And do you ever see a time where ICE agents would actually step foot on campus? Well, I, I, I've stopped thinking that anything is off limits. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so that said, um, um, first of all, you know, they can come on campus at the university because it's public, so right. they, there's nothing to keep them off campus. Whether they would actually try and detain people at the, our various universities in California, um, I, I don't, s they would have to be trying to send a tremendously strong message mm -hmm. uh, to do that. I don't th think it's gonna happen. I do think that California has a target on its back to mm -hmm. some extent. And, uh, you know, so apart from the universities, I think that in all communities in California, mm -hmm. especially those that uh, adopted sort of sanctuary city or sanctuary county right. policies, that all the public officials are having to really think carefully now about what, what seemed like a somewhat symbolic just or what it means in real terms right. once the raids start happening in their communities. And so um, I do think that's already happened and will continue to happen in California. So Marilee, what's that situation like for you in, in Elk Grove? Are you concerned about ICE raids um, happening? Yeah, I mean, it's, it continues to be an issue that concerns me, obviously, uh, because it, it creates a, um, a stressful situation you know, with the, uh, the community as a whole. 
Um, I certainly have not seen it in, in the city of Elk Grove. Uh, my regular conversation with the chief is, is uh, that it, it hasn't happened uh, mm -hmm. in, in Elk Grove. Um, and of course, that was the last conversation I had with him. Um, so that's where we're at. Um, I think that you know, our particular police department is, is very respectful of what their mission and goal is, mm -hmm. which is to focus on the citizenry in the city and uh, to make sure that they, they, they uphold the law within the, the boundaries of the city. Uh, but aside from that, we haven't seen anything that uh, would pop out as out of the ordinary. So is your police department, would, would it cooperate um, affirmatively with, with ICE? Or and, I, and I asked the police uh, chief on that. Um, you know, I hate to speak on his behalf since he's not here, mm -hmm. but our understanding is that they will follow uh, California law, and, and that's where they would observe. Uh, they don't see ad, as voluntary information you know, uh, with, uh, to provide for ICE. Uh, the only exception that he did qualify is if there was an outstanding warrant for somebody who happens to be you know, um, unlawfully here in the United States, then they're obligated to comply. But other than that, they wouldn't, um, you know, as, as he shared with me, they wouldn't uh, volunteer any information. And, and what are you hearing from um, business owners in, in Elk Grove? Are they concerned about um, raids and their employees being targeted in some way? You know, uh, for the city of Elk Grove, I haven't heard anything uh, from business owners. Um, you know, where we're at right now is um, it seems very, very stable. So, so, Daniel, speaking of California having a target on its back, um, uh, the Attorney General has been very vocal and active in, um, in suing the Trump administration over various immigration um, matters. Um, how does that affect what you do and, and your role? Um, I mean, we work closely with his office, and, and that is his constitutional you know, role, is, mm -hmm. to, is to litigate on behalf of the state and protect the interests of Californians and defend our state laws. And so um, you know, we, we actively uh, maintain contact to find, you know, to, to be on the same page, but mm -hmm. that, that is an independent role he has. Does it make your job more difficult in, in any way? No, I think, I think we work in tandem uh, well together, and I, I don't see it as a... Um, uh, I think earlier we talked about, um, uh, before the panel, we talked about the temporary protected status people. Can you talk a little bit about where California stands with them? It's another category of, of immigrants and refugees that doesn't get necessarily the attention of DACA recipients. Right. And so just uh, by way of background, temporary protected status is a status that Congress created. It's in a statute. Mm -hmm. It's to help provide uh, people who... Uh, who can't go back to their home countries because of a natural disaster, civil strife, um, for humanitarian reasons. They, you know, we want to allow them to stay in the United States longer. So we've had different populations who um, have been given TPS status because of hurricanes, um, earthquakes, mm -hmm. um, um, civil strife, so like Haitians got right. status. Um, Nicaraguans, Hondurans, Salvadoran, Syrians. So. Uh, so far, we've had uh, the, the Department of Homeland Security has made decisions to end uh, TPS for Haitians and Nicaraguans, um, and we'll be ending it for uh, uh, Salvadorans in September of 2019. Um, as a response, we, we've we've made additional investments in uh, legal services to try to find if those folks who had temporary protected status, because some of them have had it for decades. Mm -hmm. I mean, their, their status has been extended trying to find whether any of those folks may be able to find a different path forward in the interim, having been here for that much time, maybe they've got, they had another option out there that they weren't aware of. So we're trying to do a lot of outreach and screening right. to find uh, a path forward for them. 
Um, like we did with the DACA population, about 15% of them ended up having some other path forward and we, we were able to help them um, get green cards. Um, we're, we're trying to do the same thing with TPS. So far, uh, the, the communities, Haitians and, and Nicaraguans have been um, a uh, very small percentage of the mm -hmm. TPS holders in California. Salvadorans are a much bigger population. We have 50,000 in California, so we're trying to do uh, extensive outreach then before September and 2019. And Maria, do you um, have uh, many dealings with temporary protective status students, or is that not a very big population? At the we're UCS? trying to find out how big it is. Mm -hmm. It's um, uh, we've done several presentations on campuses mm -hmm. explaining what's going on with temporary protective status for different groups, the different dates, you know, the et cetera. Um, but we, we don't, you know, there's no way that we actually know because there's no record hmm. keeping that a university has about who has this category or that category. But we've been trying to do, to figure it out on our own so that we can direct them to legal services. Um, but I think that where we're seeing so far, where we've seen the most uh, number of people has been at, at our campus in LA mm -hmm. because of there's a large um, Central American population in Los Angeles, and many of the students at UCLA are local. Mm -hmm. Their families live in LA. So I think that um, the UCLA campus might be the campus where we have, uh, and in fact, I'm going to be talking about that at UCLA tomorrow about the TPS situation, trying to figure out if there's something that can, you know, how to get even more data about it. So um, the legal services that your center offers, um, has that um, also been replicated at CSU and the community colleges yet, or is that still in process? It's in the process. Uh, see, I'm, I'm working with a foundation, the Haas Junior Foundation, mm -hmm. uh, to pull together a pool of money from other foundations to uh, create a fund so that uh, CSUs and community colleges can apply, mm -hmm. not just for, it can be for whether they want legal services or whether there's another kind of service they think um, is, is more relevant to their student, immigrant student population, they will be able to apply to this fund. But right now, we're the, um, we're the only uh, segment that has legal services for, for its uh, students. So. Yeah, but I mean, so you would agree that's a huge need going forward to, to extend it to the other parts of the college system in California. It would be a huge need. And let me just say, I, you know, I think people go, well, why, why would a university be offering legal services for this one mm -hmm. particular set of people? The, um, you know, what I've tried to explain to when I get asked that question is that at universities, every campus is like a little if you've you know if you've gone to uh, uh, different campuses, they're like little cities. You have mm -hmm. all kinds of services, and you know a lot of them have services for veterans, services for uh, people that are returning to school after having been out. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, ex you know just a, a host of uh, student services for the for this population in particular, for this new immigrant population, or for Dreamers. Let's just put it mm -hmm. that way. The legality of their status is kind of their core issue. For other people, mm -hmm. it might be uh, counseling, career counseling, or you know, helping with some skill set to get mm -hmm. from one occupation to shifting to a, to a tech occupation. For this population, their legal status is kind of their, the thing they need the most and which they can't afford. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so it, it is really something that all the, all the uh, other students are asking for because many of the students we see have never been to a lawyer, their family's never been to a lawyer, they can't afford it, and they don't trust a lot of the advice they've gotten or they've gotten very bad advice. So something that kind of comes with the seal of approval mm -hmm. of the university uh, pulls a lot of people in and we're able to provide very efficient services. Sometimes we only see them once just to kind of give them a consultation. And at least, even if we can't do something for them, what I always tell the staff is, now if they end up going to some scam artist, they've already gotten really good advice that says, no, you're not eligible for anything, and they're not gonna pay somebody, you know, uh, huge dollars to, for okay. bad advice. Great, so I think it's time for questions. It's Jennifer. Um, I'm the cultural orientation and citizenship educator for a local uh, community organization. And right now we're seeing a new wave of immigration um, from Afghan special immigrant visa holders in Sacramento specifically, mm. which is very similar to the Hmong story and experience of immigration mm. in our recent past. And so I was wondering what lessons, both positive and cautionary, mm -hmm. that we have, may have learned from the Hmong experience that we can now apply to the SIV immigration experience. The, the one thing that I always retell the story is um, most people don't know that wherever America has um, dealings with, sooner or later you're gonna see refugees from there. <laughs> it's just what America is, right? I mean, we have to protect our interests, we have to protect the American people, and by doing that, we have our operatives on the ground, either CIA agents, FBI agents, or what have you. The various agencies that are there, and guess what they're doing? They're connecting with the locals. And in my situation, in, as well as the situations in, in uh, Afghanistan and uh, many other countries in which the United States is involved in, we have to recognize that in order to protect American interest, we have to befriend people. And granted, my father was one of those who risked his life rescuing American pilots and returning bodies of American pilots back to the United States. The stories that he has told me uh, is, is very gruesome, uh, but um, it's real. In that probably the, the hardest uh, mission that he went on is um, coming upon uh, a, um, uh, a jet that's been shot down and realizing that the pilot has been killed, completely burned up. But it was so important for him as a soldier to retrieve every part of that body mm -hmm. so that that body can return to his family here in the United States. And he told me that with his K-bar, he scraped the brain matter off the mm -hmm. canopy so that he could put it in the black body bag so that it would come back to the United States. But it wasn't about who, who he was as a, a Hmong soldier uh, in the CIA Army. It's more about being a human, uh, being, uh, realizing that if he was in the same situation, he would expect his fellow soldiers to do the same thing for him. And so for uh, folks that are, are here that are from Afghanistan, look deeper and ask how they were involved in the war. And as many Americans will realize that they're not here um, you know, f because they want to, but they have no choice. Uh, my family was faced with being put on the uh, must-kill list in Laos. And um, you know, my, my father, uh, there was a value for, for, for killing him. And so we had no choice. And I think that's the lesson that's extremely important uh, uh, to, to take from um, the uh, the movement of, of, of Hmong refugees here in the United States, and to acknowledge that as we progress, 
uh, in this journey, in order to protect American interests, we are going to have operatives on the ground. Those operatives need to make friends and, and you need to make contact. Contacts and friends that will risk their lives to preserve American lives. And that's why they are here. And oftentimes we forget that. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk to somebody who's not well learned, who, who doesn't understand the history, they're looking at this and saying, I can't believe there are so many refugees here or so many immigrants. But we have to understand that there's a reason why they're here. And it could be different, different reasons, right? But for this particular situation, for the, the Afghans that are coming here to the United States, I put my money on it without even knowing their individual stories. They had some kind of involvement mm -hmm. with saving American lives. Thank you very much. Liliana Ferrer, I'm the Consul General of Mexico oh. uh, here in Sacramento. And uh, more than a question, I just want to uh, thank uh, the state of California, thank the city of Sacramento. Uh, I cover a jurisdiction of 24 counties, uh, over half of, uh, of the state. And um, uh, I've been in the Foreign Service. I'm a career Foreign Service officer for the Mexican government for 25 years. And um, I feel that this is the the greatest privilege that I've had in my career serving at a time as complex as this uh, in the relationship between Mexico and the US in serving in this wonderful state. So just say thank you for this, uh, this uh, attitude, for the solidarity, for the actions. Uh, the Mexican consulate is one of 10 in California and one of 50 in the US. We have uh, the largest network of consulates of any country in the world in one country alone, in the US, and we provide a number of services that are uh, very, very similar to the ones that have been described uh, here today, uh, but we do so in partnership with strategic allies such as the UC system, in this case UC Davis, uh, McGeorge School of Law, and so many other wonderful, wonderful friends of Mexico and of our co-nationals here in uh, California. So thank you. Thank you very much for the work, uh, wonderful work you do, and thank you Californians for uh, for being so welcoming and, uh, and for defending the rights of all immigrants and all residents of this state. Thank you. They moved me over this side, that's why. Uh, Ramona <laughs> Landeros with Twin River Unified School District trustee, the first Latina uh, to serve in that area. And I know somebody mentioned uh, having somebody to mirror. I, um, I'm proud to say that many of our students in our district are affected by the, what's happening, by the raids. And my question, thank you, by the way, for keeping um, this conversation going. We're definitely keeping it going in our communities. Uh, one problem we have is, uh, and maybe somebody could just talk a little bit about that. Many of the uh, ICE officers are wearing the police badge, and which is confusing our communities. And as you know, you respect the law, you pull over. So that's a problem. So can somebody talk a little bit about that? Last year we had a, we had a bill that was signed that, that made it clear that ICE officers are not considered peace officers. Uh, so that's in law, but there really hasn't been much that we could do to change the way ICE brands itself, right? So ICE has its own uniforms and they call themselves police. There, there's not much there that we've been able to, to dissuade them from, uh, from um, present, presenting themselves as police officers. Um, so one of the things that we do, we do want to uh, engage the communities with is, again, knowing your rights, knowing uh, your constitutional rights, what to do in the face of any sort of in, uh, interrogation uh, about who you, know, who you are, what, what, you, what your rights are when someone comes to your home, you know, the, the, the fact that you can demand to see a warrant to enter your house, everybody has that constitutional right. Um, and we want to make sure that people know that so that it's meaningful and they have the confidence to ask for that uh, when someone comes to their home. The same thing when, when they're met, you know, out and, and, and on the street in the community or going to school, like they, they have 
constitutional rights in those contexts as well. You may also be aware of AB 699, which was uh, a bill that was signed by the governor that uh, will, will also provide um, uh, 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 guidance for local school districts on how to deal with ICE if ICE does come on campus. And so the Attorney General is in the process of drafting guidance for school districts and model policies that the Department of Education will also be uh, assisting with so that local school districts can adopt them. Um, so those, those, those legal systems are, are, are currently in play and hopefully will have the effect of, of, of educating the community about their rights and school districts on what to do in those contexts moving forward. I was wondering about um, how you would define a sanctuary state or city. Um, I feel like it's a very nebulous sort of subjective definition that, could, um, that doesn't seem to have any sort of legal uh, definition to it, and I was wondering if you think it's possible for a state or city to be a sanctuary state or city with such a, a federal government that's so hostile to immigration right now, um, if uh, there's anything that California or your jurisdictions should do in order to really, could do to really be a sanctuary. I think that's you again, Daniel. Okay, <laughs> sure, sure. I, so I, yeah, I think... Uh, it's a frame that's highly contested. Uh, you know, it, 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 go, it has deep roots in, in the refugee uh, uh, resettlement uh, uh, pr process in the early, in the late 70s, early 80s, where a lot of um, uh, faith-based groups were helping uh, refugees literally seek sanctuary in, in their churches and seek services. And it's interesting, a lot of academics have debated, you know, what, does that, what did it originally mean 40 years ago? 40, you know, and, and it really, when you look at, at the media, sort of um, record back then, it was, it was more than just providing protection. It was walking along the side of a refugee. It's, it's, it's solidarity. It's, it was about, you know, really hands-on integration of refugees. And so it had a different meaning then. Today, I think it's, it's a contested um, frame that, that, that's been sort of turned upside down by, by our federal government. And so it's lost that original meaning. I think what our, our task is, uh, as a state, is to is to really continue to work on welcoming, being a welcoming space for immigrants of all statuses, uh, to make uh, meaningful policy changes that really help create access for opportunity and success in our state. Recognizing that, that you know, a lot of our immigrants have been here decades. That we have mixed status households. It's, it's not a simple um, uh, other, you know, otherizing process. I mean, we have people who are undocumented, who are married to U.S. citizens, who have U.S. citizen children, who have a parent who has a lawful permanent residence status. It's not a system where we can just say, you know, let's, let's easily pluck away one person and be done with that undocumented, per, you know, uh, individual. That's not, that's not the context that we live in. We have veterans who have served our country, who had green cards, w committed a crime, but then were deported after, you know, losing, um, sacrificing for our country. And you know, the context that we're in is far more complicated, I think, than a frame. So it's really not something I think that has been helpful. And I think we have to, again, uh, message around all these different complexities and, and, and stick to uh, a frame of, if we're gonna stick to a frame of being a welcoming state. Well, that's a great point to end on. And before we do close, I'd like to thank uh, our partners today, our friends at the California Wellness Foundation for being a co-presenter and making tonight, uh, today possible. I'd also like to thank all of you for joining us and coming out for this really essential conversation that we're having. And finally, a big final round of applause for our featured speakers tonight. Thank you so much.